Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please join me in welcoming Nathan Lee, film critic for The Village Voice. Adam Lowenstein, professor at the University of Pittsburgh and author of Shocking Representation, Historical Trauma, National Cinema, and the Modern Horror Film. Maitland McDonough, film critic for TV Guide and among many other books, the author of Filmmaking on the Fringe, The Good, the Bad, and the Deviant Directors. And Joshua Rothkopf, film critic for Time Out New York. By way of introduction, I'd like to ask each of our panelists, um, and I'll start with Nathan, what was your first profound encounter with a horror film, the first time that a film made you think that there could be something something valuable here? Hmm. Um, horror films were the first genre that I really loved as a kid, and uh, I didn't see them in theaters. I saw them uh, on VHS at home. Um, I think the first film that had a really big impact on me um, that has affiliations with the horror genre was probably Videodrome, uh, the David Cronenberg film. I had been, you know, watching slasher films and watching sort of pulp horror films uh, before that, but that was the first film I saw and I was maybe 15, 14, 15, um, that I knew something more was going on than just the kind of kicks of a horror film. Uh, and then from that I became obsessed with Cronenberg um, and I think it really, it sort of started there for me. I think for me, uh, I, I have vivid memories of catching some of my, my first horror images uh, as a kid on television, and often in the context of, of, of a babysitter who let my brother and I stay up later than we, we normally would have been. And uh, I think at the time, I, I didn't even know the name of the film, but you know, as, as, as time went on and this became my, my profession, I, I, of course, researched it and found out what it was, but I have vivid memories of a film called Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things uh, as, as being uh, a film that really kind of uh, blew my mind at the, at the time and kind of got me intrigued about the kind of possible reactions you can have to images of horror, uh, a, a kind of combination of, of pleasure and, and repulsion and intrigue and fright. That, that's, that's how I remember it starting. I also got my first taste of horror from an inattentive babysitter. Her name was Chantal, and she let me watch things I shouldn't have watched because they gave me nightmares, but they also gave me a taste for more of that stuff. And I remember spending a lot of my youth looking at the teeny tiny little ads that would appear in newspapers for things that were playing in Times Square. I mean, tiny, less than an inch square. And I wanted to see all those movies. And finally, when I was 12, I told my parents some lie and went and saw Oliver Stone's Seizure, at the Selwyn <laughs> Theatre. It was a rubber reality movie starring Jonathan Frid from Dark Shadows, a show that I loved. And it's the one that made me think, okay, now I really need more of this. I need to see all these movies. I need to see them all, and I'm still working on it. <laughs> For me, William Castle would be happy, but it was a, a poster. I remember being, I wasn't even 10 yet, and uh, I think I think I was at camp and we went to some playground and I saw a poster for the movie Alien, the first Alien, and and I was like, I think I was nine and there was a monster on somebody's face and there was a big egg and people, you know, in 
frozen containers and everything. And I was way too young to go see the movie. And uh, and, and, and later on, I would learn that all the revulsion that I would have just at the poster was all intended, and, and all the fear that I had of, of um, you know, being impregnated and, and, and things <laughs> shooting out of your body and everything, that that was all part of the point. And, and I, remember, I remember being thrilled and kind of unhinged even at the time and, and hoping to reclaim that sort of feeling. There's something about watching these horror films that's very... It's liberating as a viewer because you're, you're really taken to a place where you're not in control, uh, and the only control comes from choosing to go see the film. And then you sit down, and then it's like, oh my God, there's going to be an egg or a face or something. You know? <laughs> but but that was that was probably the moment for me. How do you think that the horror films of the 1970s reflected their time, and how do today's horror films reflect the contemporary world? Um, maybe we should start with Adam on this one. Well, I, I think. One of the great things about this series and, and, and one of the exciting things about it is, is that it, it really does stage an opportunity for audiences to, to work through this question on their own terms. I mean, the, the films that have been chosen for the series really do invite us all to, to think about, well, what was going on in those films of the 70s? What's going on in the films of today? And, and is there a relationship between, between these things? And, and my, my feeling is, is that in a lot of ways, uh, the films from from the present, I, I like to think about it as a, as a kind of continuous, continuously unfolding post 9/11 moment. The the films from the series that represent that moment are plugged into their social and historical context in in pretty complicated and compelling and moving ways. I think our reaction for most people is to say whatever way these new films are plugged in, it's not as powerful, it's not as compelling, it's not as sophisticated as the 70s films. And and one of the things that's that's not really fair about that comparison is that we've had a lot more time to think about the 70s and, and to think about Vietnam and, and to think about what that era meant and what it was all about. And we have the benefit of of that hindsight to to really look at something like Night of the Living Dead or Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and, and say, look, there's the turmoil of that era right up there on the screen. How could you even argue that that's not happening? In a way that the films of today, in those moments that seem powerfully plugged in, there's always a kind of lingering sense of, well, what is this historical moment about in the first place? You What's know? an example of, of one of them? Well, I think about, for example, uh, <laughs> One of the films in the series that's being screened here is 28 Weeks Later, which is a film that, that seems on its surface to, to very much understand itself as an Iraq War allegory. It, it, it's complete. It's an American occupation of a foreign country with a green zone. I mean, all, all, all these things are, are right up there on the surface. But as the film goes on, you realize that it's, it's not a film that's really interested or invested in spinning out that allegory in a sustained way. It, it, it's more interested in saying, oh look, here's here's a scene from Night of the Living Dead, and here's a scene from Dawn of the Dead, and here's a scene from Day of the Dead, and it gets more caught up in, in that kind of uh, genre mythology and genre referencing than, than kind of um, sustaining itself as, as a Iraq war allegory. But, but the glimmers are there, and, and what I would say is that in time, those glimmers are going to seem more and more clear. 
and in places where you don't always expect them. Absolutely. I mean, it's important in this, this kind of a talk to remember what Andrew Saris once said, which is you're always too close to the popular cinema of your time to really understand Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You need that historical distance. And what may look you know, allegorical to us now, like in 28 Weeks Later, you know, 30 years from now, we may be looking at a movie like uh, The Descent, which doesn't have an obvious sort of political allegory, and see something there that we're not seeing now. So, right. you know, there's, it is interesting, though, that some of this subtext has become text in, in the current round of horror films, that horror films are clearly and overtly responding to contemporary events um, in a way that, I think in the earlier incarnation, it was more coded, it was more buried, and it was things that were revealed over time. Um, there's a self-consciousness now about what I think is sometimes an opportunistic kind of allegorical aspect of these films, um, but it's definitely come to the fore. I should also say, you know, I'm the person on this panel who's old enough to have seen those films of the 70s when they were new. And I'll tell you, I, I vividly remember that the feeling of the 70s was that the world was coming to an end. You know, the, the gas crisis, the Vietnam War just dragging on and on and on, turning on the TV every night and seeing body bags, racial conflict, you know, all of that was part of what you lived every day. And it produced a kind of a low-level, constant anxiety that you were never free of. And those films of the 70s, those horror films of the 70s, Night of the Living Dead, Death Dream, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all had that same anxiety built into them. So even if you couldn't see the obvious allegorical aspect of those films, you would see those movies and feel like, wow, that is what I feel like. Mm -hmm. Those movies are really capturing the feeling that I have every time I turn on the news, every time I think about the world I live in. It was extremely vivid. And this is obviously markedly different from the horror that we saw in the 90s, where it was all like, well, will Nev Campbell figure it out? Or some kind of, a, <laughs> some kind of snarky horror where the self-referentiality is, is about how much do you know horror genre movies? Or conversely, in the 90s, you have the rise of the serial killer who's who's the, um, the, the ultimate bourgeois consumer, um, Clintonite consumer. And now these new movies feel very much uh, more, more politically explicit, more fetishistically in explicit in terms of their violence. And, and, it, and it definitely feels like something different after the J-horror transitional phase. Can you be more specific? Well, um, that's, that's um, I, I remember the first movie that in, in this, what I would like to consider a new trend, this new horror, um, that really struck me was Final Destination 2. And, and there is something to be said for the fact that, you know, we're, we're not uncritical fans of this genre. You know, we have our likes and dislikes. And this though is we are fans, make Though no we mistake. are fans, <laughs> certainly. But I remember seeing um, Final Destination 2 and, and, and the idea of this sort of um, free-floating death from above and plate glass falling from the sky and crushing people and wires severing people and that it was inevitable and that you were going to be destroyed just from these everyday objects coalescing that felt very um very much what i was feeling at the at the time in terms of my own fears in living in, in new york and post september 11th and and i don't think that the writer or director james wong um was specifically articulating that in a conscious way but the film does we can read into these films. We can make meaning of these films where, where we need it to be. And, and that, to me, I mean, when I look at the news, and there's very little discussion of what this fear is, yet I'm seeing it in the horror films, that makes that genre more interesting. It makes it more significant. Well, it's, it's interesting something you said. We find in, in these films the things that we need. There's things we need from horror films. And I think one of the most 
sort of obvious explanations for um, this idea of torture porn and torture chic that's out there and this kind of return of um, really intense torture in the movies is that these are things that we know now are out there. I mean, we're being t these are being talked about in the highest levels of our government and in our media that we live in a, a culture of torture now where torture is a fact of our existence in a way it never has been before. Or not talked about by our But we don't see it. Right. We don't actually get mm -hmm. to see it. And these films show it to us. And on some level, I think we, we need to see that right now. We need to see people being tortured because we know this is happening. We know we have some responsibility in it. And horror films on one level are a way of us confronting that and becoming complicit in it and, and taking you know, maybe a kind of responsibility for it. And also, I, I would say, as someone who, who spends a lot of time thinking about these questions of historical context in the relation to horror, I think we also don't want to forget that there's also a very visceral context for, for horror, too, just the, the, the thrill-seeking aspect of it, and, and that one of the things that these, these films like Hostel and Saw are plugging into is an audience desire to be pushed viscerally to a place that they haven't been pushed before. And it's not that these two things are mutually exclusive. I mean, we can definitely have horror films that use that kind of visceral jolt to get us to think about certain historical, social, political things, but that, that these things are always kind of working together, sometimes in a collaborative way and, and sometimes kind of at, at cross purposes. And, and I think that's part of what we would need to sort out too in the, this kind of torture porn. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that I think is really important about these movies is that, you know, there's a line of thinking that horror films allow you to contain certain kinds of emotions, certain kinds of anxieties. It kind of wraps them up and at the end it gets solved and you can go home feeling okay. But I actually never thought that that was what appealed to me about horror movies. What appealed to me about them was that they validated my suspicions <laughs> about the world, that they validated my feeling that everything wasn't okay that there were some really wrong things going on beneath the surface of you know, my relatively comfortable, secure, middle-class life, and that it wasn't just me, that I wasn't crazy, that that stuff was there, and that I wasn't the only person thinking it, because there were these movies that somebody was making and that a lot of people were going to see and responding to in a very vivid and visceral way that exposed exactly those anxieties. And I think that that's something that hasn't changed between the 70s and now. I think the movies we're seeing now expose those anxieties and validate people's feelings that, yeah, you know what, I'm right. That stuff really is there. Today is Father's Day, and I want to thank all the fathers in the audience for coming. <laughs> in addition to all the political subtexts that you can see in horror films, it's interesting that intimate issues of family are often evoked, and I'd like to, to talk about some of the ways that the family is evoked in horror films. I think it's a little bit less known that this is, but if you look, that it's it's something that's really, really fascinating. Maybe Josh, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, well, I think the perhaps the ultimate horror family film that is in the series is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That um, just showed just right before right, here. That was just right. Did, did you all stay, or were you here for Texas Chainsaw Massacre? That's a pretty awesome film. So <laughs> when, when, you're, when you're watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I mean, it, the title is almost misleading because it, it suggests something that's especially gory and turns out to be much more about a family that sticks together and and is is looking for food and 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 I and I think that that film Texas Chainsaw Massacre for me speaking personally was um, one of the first instances where I began to read 
into the subtext of what horror is. I've had the opportunity to talk to Toby Hooper, and sometimes he's articulate about what the film means, but reading into it, it was very clearly like sort of a class war happening um, where Americans sort of misadventure into the backwoods and then they become food. And now that could be Vietnam. It could be a sort of mid-'70s class war, the silent majority. There's all sorts of levels you can read into it. And I think that the new horror has reclaimed a lot of that sort of social familial context. I think of the first film that comes to mind is Devil's Rejects, which feels very reminiscent of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but also it has a strong there's a strong sense of a family sticking together by hook or by crook and an outlaw family. It feels a lot like Bonnie and Clyde. And you can read into the film as less a delivery system for shocks and more of a, a sort of a skewed anti-social picture of what a family could possibly be, what your family could possibly be. And I think what you're saying about Texas Chainsaw is especially interesting because it's not just one family, it's two families. You know, you have right. Sally and her brother Franklin, and then you have the young couple, Pam, and I forget the boy's name. So you've pitted two families against each other in a way that becomes even more apparent in the original version of The Hills Have Eyes. Right, you know, in the which, remake too. Absolutely, yeah. which Wes Craven always described as, you know, the white breads and the other family. Right. They, it, you know, they're the underclass, they're the oppressed, <laughs> they're the family who never had the advantages and now they're somehow trying to claw their way up and claim their own and uh, that, that that's a very american anxiety the and idea it can it happens in this abstract space in the desert mm -hmm. of this post nuclear space where or the total backwoods right. of texas chainsaw mm -hmm. you know it, it's like the ground has been cleared and now these two completely different families are going to duke it out to see who's going to come out on top and who's going to live the american dream yeah. right. which which is one of the reasons i i really am impressed with uh the Hills Have Eyes remake that's that's running in this series. It seems like a film that really understands these kinds of family dynamics from the 70s films and and, and takes it to uh, an even more compelling place. Like in the remake, one of the major differences between the monster family and the and the the normal family is that the mutants don't have the economic means to forget about the past. They're, they're literally locked in the past. They're I mean, trapped inside of it. And, and it's, the, it's the wealthy white bread family that has things like cars and iPods and television and, and all these ways to, to not think about the past. And I think that's why using the atomic testing village is brilliant. such an incredible stroke it's brilliant. in that movie. It is. It, it really is. And to have those scenes of uh, uh, the, the model America, you know, which which was of course, you know, blown up in these in these atomic explosions. Literally, to, the model America. Yeah, yeah, the, the <laughs> literal model America is is where these mutants live, and they have American flags, and, and in a lot of ways, they're much more patriotic than the the normal family. Right, we're very much out for themselves. Right, 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 and and there's a poignant kind of attachment, I think, that we develop with the the outsiders. And yet, the great thing about both of those versions is that they don't stack the deck. Yeah. Because when the normal family, the white breads, come under siege, they do pull together yeah. and they do look out for each other. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not—they're not the bad guys. They're just the guys who had a better leg up on the ladder, right. and now suddenly they're face to face with people who didn't have that leg up right. and who are really mad about it. And now they're going <laughs> to eat that leg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had to have. <laughs> That's consumerism, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Thank you, George Romero. <laughs> yes. Yes women are also joining their male counterparts at the box office for horror films. Um, we showed the movie Saw 2 yesterday, and the New York Times and Lionsgate reported 
that 32% of ticket buyers for SAW II were women under the age of 25, compared with 28% of men the same age. There are also no women directors of feature films in this series, um, and with a few rare exceptions, like the wonderful Catherine Bigelow, for instance, who made a great film Near Dark in the 90s. Or Stephanie um, Rothman, who did a couple of movies in the 70s. Um, there are very few women directing feature films, and yet the texts themselves are very much about women, about simultaneously exploiting and exploring women's issues. And I'd like to know what you think about women's relationship to horror films. Maitland, why don't we start? I guess I'm the obvious person to start. <laughs> and as we were saying before we came in here, you know, for the better part of two decades, I could be pretty much guaranteed that I was going to be the only woman in a theater seeing a first-run horror movie. I, Times Square, Midtown, didn't matter where it was, I was the only woman there except maybe for a couple of girls who had gone with their boyfriends and who left halfway through, usually dragging the boyfriends with them. <laughs> and that, to me, frankly, is fascinating because I always loved horror movies and I always felt that they were about the battle between the haves and the have-nots, and I think I included women in the have-nots. And so even though a lot of horror movies were certainly on the surface about tormenting and murdering women, I always felt that somewhere in them the dynamic had to do with fighting back, you know, fighting the power, to use a cliched phrase, with somehow resisting the status quo, the patriarchal society. I mean, there are a whole lot of terms I could throw at you. You know them all. I felt that that was always built into horror movies. And so even when women were not explicitly the heroes, although they often were, I mean, the, the concept of the final girl, something Carol Clover talks about a lot, was built in very early to horror movies and certainly into slasher movies. I mean, you see it in the 80s all the time. There was usually a girl. Can you describe the final girl? The final the girl was the girl who made it to the end, and she was often the good girl, the one who wasn't off sleeping with her boyfriend in the boat shed while some little camper was drowning. You know, she was the, the, the virginal character. She was the one who went to school, got good grades, was nice to her parents. And she was the one who got to make it to the end because somehow those characteristics gave her the spine, the inner steel that it took to stand up to the boogeyman. It's not just virgin, her, the, their virgin status, though. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis will still talk about how her role in Halloween was the smartest role she's ever taken. Absolutely. And these are women who who are figuring situations out and having to learn on the spot and overcome it. Maybe because they weren't always in the boat shed with their boyfriends. Right. They had some time to think. <laughs> but at the same time, about, about Halloween, John Carpenter has said that when they described the, the plot of Halloween, when, uh, it's when a he romance. was proposed it, he said it was just a movie about serial killers who stalked babysitters and the women were just bait. Right, and it, it did go into production under the title The Babysitter Murders. I mean, it doesn't get more basic than that. And, and, and what's interesting also regarding women is that these new films, they seem to be moving away from the final girl type concept, at least in my opinion. I mean, you have Mary Elizabeth Winstead in, in the Final Destination movies and Final Destination 3. Um, she strikes me as sort of a, a very archetypal final girl type character. But for the most part, you get a sense that the, the violence happening in these movies is sort of it's not really gender specific. It's inevitable. It's happening to everyone. And Jigsaw and Saw, for example, really is, he's, he's, he's not an on equal opportunity torturer. Yes, he's, he's certainly not on, on some kind of gender revenge. Yeah. Well, and The Descent is, is yeah. the most perfect thing to talk about there. I mean, do you want to address that? Well, I, I just think The Descent, in certain ways, I think shores up Joshua's sense that these films aren't kind of gender specified or gender obsessed in the, in the same way that the Halloween. Uh, generation of films was, where it was really important 
that it was a kind of a gender-confused female, the, fi- the final girl who, who's, you know, she's virginal. She's able to kind of take on masculine things like knives and, and, and saws to, to, to get the job done. And knitting needles. And knitting needles. <laughs> you know, that, that paired against a gender-confused male who's got the chainsaw and he's got the knives, but he, he doesn't have the equipment to, to do anything sexual. So He has a that, mask. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, so that was really important for those films. But something like the, the Descent really shows how, in a certain way, how anatomical sex is just not as, it's not a battle that these films are, are that interested in, in fighting in a certain way. The fact that we have a completely female group in this film. Uh, Trapped in a giant stone vagina. Exactly, exactly. It's almost as if it's more about the, uh, the, the kind of suspense potential that, that having a group of very tough women in this situation uh, is more compelling than than doing it with with men, rather than like, well, let's make a statement about you know how how women have certain strengths or certain weaknesses, and that we need a man to kind of sort that out in some kind of way. That it's just interested in different things. And one of the things I love about the descent is it, it's absolutely uncompromising about what happens to those female friendships once right. the pressure starts being applied. Yeah. They do not all pull together yeah. like good no. sisters. Yeah. You know, the the internal divisions that have already started to separate them from one another really come to the forefront as soon as the heat is on, yeah. and they turn on each other. Yeah. Yeah. One of the words that, that keeps coming up in describing contemporary horror films is misogynist or misogynistic. I, w- I want to ask you what you think about that accusation. <laughs> Who wants to take that <laughs> one? <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt that the horror film has a special uh, affection for torturing women. There's, there's just no way of, of getting around that. But I, I, I tend to agree with what Maitland was, was saying earlier in that the horror film always has a real soft spot, I guess I would say, for the underdog, for the disempowered, uh, for the disadvantaged. And this reaches out to fans, too, I think, in a certain way, who often feel like I'm in a minority liking these kinds of films. You know, the people, the, the people I go to school with don't understand this. You know, my parents don't understand this. Uh, so so th- there's, there's always that sense of, of being on the outs that's, that's so crucial to horror. And, and I think, I, I agree with Maitland on this, that th- these films, as, as extraordinarily cruel as they can be towards women, do have a deep and, and pretty sophisticated sense of, of what it means to be female in a society where the, the norm and, and the, the default setting is, is male. I also think of moments in certain movies that I think people would probably not overtly think of as feminist that struck me in a really powerful way, and one of them is Shivers, David Cronenberg's They Came From Within. Which is often talked about as a misogynist. Oh, absolutely. And certainly a lot of really bad things happen to women in that, starting with the mistress of the scientist who's created a, a parasite, a sex parasite, that creeps around this squeaky clean Toronto housing development infecting people with uncontrollable sexual desire that's tied with a desire for violence and you know it it creates a mighty mess let's say (laughs) but there's a sequence near the end where the ostensible hero the doctor who's trying to fix all this not very successfully is speaking to his girlfriend who he does not yet realize has become one of the infected to use the 28 days and weeks later term 
And she starts telling him about a dream that she had in which she's making love to a very old man. And he's old and he's diseased and her first thought is he's disgusting, he's horrible. She says, and then I realized that all flesh is erotic flesh. All flesh is good flesh. And it's a chilling moment because there's an incredible freedom and liberation in what she's saying that completely runs counter to where you think it's going. I mean, you think it's going to be a horrible moment. But in fact, she has just stated the philosophy that runs through most of Cronenberg's early movies, the notion of the new flesh. And it might not be the flesh that you think right now is the good flesh, but in fact, its own internal greatness is such that it transcends everything. And it's a moment that gives me chills, frankly, even To be now. fair, though, and I, and I think this captures this dynamic perfectly, that the kind of the... the the tension in horror films is the end of that sequence that you're mentioning ends with the the fecal parasite coming out of her mouth and her being slapped by the uh, the the hero and taping her mouth shut. Yes, <laughs> so. but then look, but then look where it goes after that. Right, it winds right. up in that swimming pool yeah. where she looks. She gets to kiss him, and finally. she looks unbelievably beautiful. And he finally yeah. surrenders. He surrenders to the new flesh. And, and we it's sympathize with her. We sympathize Completely. with her. And let's talk about, I mean, if we're really going to use the M word, the misogyny word, I mean, why don't we level that at the other movies that are supposedly more acceptable? How about like romantic comedies? Like romantic comedies or yeah. say something like, like Sp Spider-Man 3 where, yeah. where a, the strong woman character from the last two movies is neutered and turned into this shrill, you know, nagging yeah. person or, or Pirates of the Caribbean where you have a great actor like Keira Knightley who's converted into sort of a, an, a, like a detached element in the film. I mean, that to me is, is a real misogyny mm -hmm. that's, that's not as explored, whereas at least in these horror films, fine, the women are getting uh, hurt and killed, but very often they prevail. The horror genre is the one that has characters like Ellen Ripley and Alien. The horror, the horror genre, is, that's the place where you'll find Jamie Lee Curtis's, the, the women that prevail. I mean, Absolutely. it's not really in romantic mm -hmm. comedies. No, romantic comedies horrify me because they uphold. What scares you? Oh, <laughs> romantic comedies, which first of all require people in their 30s and 40s to act like they were stupid 13-year-olds because otherwise, they, you know, you can't make the plot machinations work, and that uphold the absolute most oppressive, disempowering stereotypes of of relationships between men and women. Give me a horror movie any day. Right. Nathan, what about you? I'd like to hear you talk about maybe gender and sexuality in horror. Hmm, gender and sexuality and horror. I mean, I think more interesting than, or, or more relevant than maybe misogyny in horror films is um, misanthropy, just, just pure nihilism, um, regardless of gender. Um, I mean, when we were talking before a little bit about the, the family sort of dynamics, I think what's interesting underlying that even is a sense of communities, that horror films are about communities, whether they're male and female communities or inside-outside communities. Um, the communities of the infected versus the non-infected, um, and the fans too. The function of gender is, is a lot about is a lot about that. It's about competing and rival communities. And I think one of the most interesting sort of shifts that's happened between the old horror and the new horror, and, and this is moving a little bit away from the the gender question, is um, the two Dawn of the Dead remakes, um, which in you know in the first Dawn of the Dead film, the idea is. The survivors arrive at a shopping mall, and uh, you know they're besieged by zombies, and they form this kind of family, this sort of community, this survival. They band together. It's about solidarity and creating a new civilization. And I was fascinated in the Dawn of the Dead remake that when they get to the shopping mall, they turn on each other, and they hate each other, and they don't trust each other, and there's just kind of atomizing 
of society. And it's like, to me, that's really interesting shift between the earlier era that you were speaking about, about the anxiety and, and the fears of the time, where there was still this lingering sense that there could be a kind of, you know, maybe uh, An you know, social, co you know, that mm -hmm. society could come together to survive these things. Now it just feels much more sort of atomized. And I think that film brilliantly sort of encapsulizes that. Uh, the first time I saw it, I just thought, this is a piece of shit, this movie. <laughs> and, and I missed that sense of, of them banding together. And I thought, you know, how horrible and nihilistic this is. Watching it, I realized that it, it unconsciously perfectly sort of expressed um, a change that had happened in our culture um, or, or in what we think is possible in our culture. So that's a little bit of a shift away from the idea of, no, that's great. of like gender, but um, you know, I do think underlying it is, is the sense of communities, and it's, it's interesting to watch how sense of community has changed from the old horror to the new horror. I also think, though, that you see the roots of that in a movie like George Romero's The Crazies, mm -hmm. which is the anti-Dawn of the Dead. In that film, that both, film both that very films much are directed by George Romero. Sorry? You say both films that are yeah. directed right. by the same director. And in that film, it, it very much prefigures 28 days later and 28 weeks later in that a, a virus is unleashed on a small town community. And frankly, they don't pull together. You know, they're, they're torn yeah. apart by it. And, and that was a movie that gave me nightmares, right. let me tell you, because there was no good ending to that story. And even Romero seems to be cognizant of the shift with Absolutely. if you watch Land of the Dead, mm -hmm. which is a very post-socialist movie. And, yeah. a and very the most sympathetic character is a zombie. Right, Absolutely. the most sympathetic yeah. character is a zombie. And then you have a sort of a, uh, like a sort of a race class revenge aspect coming out with the John Leguizamo character. Mm -hmm. And it's very much uh, you're out for yourself. And it's not about banding together as a hardy team of survivors. It's, right. it's a completely different vibe. Right. I've, I've noticed that too, what Nathan says about the sort of um, atomizing, a splintering. Um, and that mm -hmm. strikes me as very current too. It's like we're c connected and also very separate. And uh, there's been a lot of critical discussion about MySpace and YouTube and the idea of, of a lot of the places where where new people are looking for connectivity are actually separating. And I think that, that the new horror films definitely definitely is express that. Adam, Absolutely. do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I, I would definitely go to Land of the Dead also the way the way Joshua did. Um, and and I'm, I'm sure if you had 300 weeks to, to show this series that all, all of these films would have gotten in here. Five but it, it's a great selection short. of films. Yeah. It's a great selection of films. Um, but Land of the Dead does strike me as really interesting along this line about community, which I think Nathan's absolutely right, that this is a central horror concern. And and Land of the Dead, you know, being made by George Romero, the man who we, we kind of give credit for the birth of the, the modern horror film in, in a lot of ways, is someone who's clearly thought about horror for many years and, 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 and felt it in a really deep way. And the place he comes to in Land of the Dead is a place where the most sympathetic character is a zombie and a place where the chief evil character, who, who is, of course, the, the richest character, is played by Dennis Hopper, which, which really feels like a kind of bitter uh, irony. a bitter irony yeah. about, about <coughs> you know, where are we in relation to the 60s and, and the ideas that we had back then, and you know, the, the biggest kind of you know, corporate creep in, in the film is, is Dennis Hopper, and, and he's... He's modeled consciously on on uh, Donald Rumsfeld and George Bush. Like that, that was an explicit part of the. That, that's part of what got Dennis Hopper to do the movie. Is is that that that's what I want to do. So I think this sense of a kind of diminished sense of possibilities for community is something that these new horror films are very much 
interested in and nervous about and and I think you can you can see that in different ways across a lot of the films in this in this series like 28 weeks later uh, you know even even the, the idea of community down to the level of of the family I mean the, the structuring uh, glue there in the family is betrayal I mean it's just something that plays itself out in larger and larger circles in terms of you know the, the British authority the American authority and then by the end of the film we're out to Paris and and, and you know in a, in a great kind of snap moment of, of like the you know the Paris Muslim youth riots you know you, you you get that sense that that in each of these contexts there's less and less of a chance in some kind of way for people actually connecting with each other in a way that's not horrific and one of the things that I think is fascinating about Romero is people sometimes talk about his movies as being kind of blunt tools you know very yeah. obvious in their allegory but as early as Dawn of the Dead, which is only his second zombie movie, you see the zombies as the enemy for most of the film. You have a family, they band together, they find a place to hide, they're fighting off the zombies throughout the entire film. But then there's that moment when the motorcycle gang invades the mall, and they're just having a high all time with their machetes, zooming around the ground floor of the mall, decapitating zombies, you know, treating them as, as objects for them to play with, and all of a sudden, you feel bad for the zombies. And it's a very interesting subtlety, I think. In a well, film. the irony there is that the, the biker gang is kind of the degenerate counterculture mm -hmm. that's come into this kind of 70s, you know, commercial. Consumerist consumer paradise. Consumer paradise, yeah. yeah. Right, right. Which I think Romero said in the film that we showed yesterday, The American Nightmare, who, who are the, who's the living dead? Who are the living dead? We are the living dead uh, because we know we're going to die and we're walking around. Right, right. And, and I, I think horror is always <laughs> very much... Uh, interested in, in, in playing with our sense of identification and all of these films, even, even the most kind of primitive and unsuccessful horror films, know that part of, of what they need to do to engage their audience is play a kind of shifting game with, with where their sympathies are going to lie and, and all of a sudden there are these moments where what you thought was the monster and what you thought was terrifying and what you want to get away from turns out to be the thing you're rooting for. Uh, I, I think the films are, are really valuable and, and useful in that way in challenging us to to test where our sympathies come from and, and how we invest them and, and how we go about transforming them. Well, I'm, I'm interested in that, that idea of identification and who identify with in a movie by the Saw films and the Final Destination films, in which it seems to me that the identification process is with the game of the movie itself, Absolutely. and the kind of structure and mechanics of these elaborate Baroque sort of death systems, and not with anyone in particular in the film. Right. It's like you, what you identify with, what you want to see play out, um, and what you want to get to know is how this mechanism is going to sort of, you know, wind up and resolve itself. And that's so I think that's a really, in I mean, Josh, I know, has, has that's you know. <laughs> that's definitely one of the cathartic things about those films for me, too, because uh, there is almost a, it almost assures us that there's a presentation of logic when you see the way one of Jigsaw's traps work. It's like, oh, there's a reason why the pain's going to happen. It's because she's not going to be in time to with the, the key, or you know, this weight is going to fall. Or, and when you watch the cutting in a movie like Final Destination 2 or 3, it's very clear topographically. There's, there, it's almost like Hitchcock in a sense. That's very different from, I think, the real world in the sense that when we see beheadings or, or, or you know, the violence happening. Uh, you know, abroad, there's there is no reason, and we're not getting reasons from from government. We're not getting reasons socially. So, in a way, I would say these these horror films are sort of providing reasons for for pain. They're they're giving us a sort of a, a logical structure and showing us, well, 
that these machines have consequences. Mm -hmm. So consequences are right. Yeah, consequences way. are what's lacking in today's society. And I think, that, that, I mean, that's a very strange identification when you're going to a horror film for reasons, reasons for reasons for Abu Ghraib, reason, you know, and 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 we're not hearing the reasons expressed from authorities. But maybe Jigsaw will will be the authority. <laughs> I think that Jigsaw is, it, in a lot of ways, is it is a sort of a daddy figure. I mean, he's he's telling us why. Oh well, we, you know, either we sinned or we we don't appreciate what we have, or we don't appreciate the things we might lose. And so there's a real sort of a causality it's being expressed. It's for our own good. It's for our own good. Yeah. Now, I'm not hearing that from George Bush. You know, so. <laughs> right. lots of horror films are remakes or sequels. Um, this is not unique to horror. Uh, as a kid, I went I went through every Nancy Drew book, and that film is out right now. And, and you see, and you see, but it does lead to the perception of the genre as unoriginal. Um, but William Paul writes in his book one of my favorite lines. He writes, "What critics regard as endless and inane repetition, uh, the audiences themselves see as endless variation." I like to know what you think a little bit about this idea, and I'd like to start with Nathan. Well, um, I mean, no genre is more dependent on formula than horror. I mean, we go into it, you know having an idea of a template in our head and we want to see it satisfied or new twists on it or, or pushed to a new extreme. An interesting moment for me in, in thinking about all this, these sort of new horror films was seeing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, um, which was reviled by basically everyone and, and it's a pretty shitty movie in fact. But I remember sitting there watching it and thinking uh, about an hour in when the mayhem really starts going that A, this is pretty well made and B, what's really horrifying here is the way the style is, the, the difference between the style of the original and, and the remake. The remake has this incredibly clean, polished, sort of burnished, very suave, um, I would say corporate kind of uh, rhetoric to it and tone to it. It's a package, it looks beautiful. It's sort of beautifully designed and beautifully put together. And you know the original has this much more confrontational, raw, kind of dirty, grungy aesthetic. And I had this moment of watching this film and actually getting really excited by it, by the shift of the horror film from the sort of marginal culture to mainstream culture, and that this was a completely mainstream sort of production and its look and its feel. And so I think that's one of the interesting things, things that's happening in these remakes is that what has was once this kind of almost punk, oppositional, independent production has become, you know, has shifted into a sort of more mainstream phenomenon. Um, and that becomes almost an economic comment in the sense that these are these remakes are, are Hollywood productions, they're studio productions, um, and so or when you have quasi-studio, well, quasi-studio, like or, or yeah. studio-funded at, at the very least, and then you have a, you have an organic film, right? Like you say, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, being remade in this sort of glossy sheen corporate studio style. It's almost as if to say, like, um, well, here's here's your entertainment for the weekend. This, this sort of slick package and it's the same content. There's there's something that's very disturbing about mm. that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, the thing about this question of remakes is some of them are very good and some of them are better than the originals. I mean, I think the Hills Have Eyes remake is far superior to Wes Craven's in terms of its filmmaking and its execution. I mean, it couldn't have the cultural impact that the first film had, but I think it's it's sort of brilliantly made. And it's, it's a knee-jerk reaction just to say these films are completely useless or they're completely sort of crass and commercial. Horror has a tradition of having better remakes than the originals if you think about David Cronenberg's The Fly or John Carpenter's The Thing, which I would consider superior to the originals, in that because horror is so suggestive and soaks up meanings like a sponge and can vary depending on the decade or when it's released, a remake has just a, as significant a chance of succeeding as the original. But for every good remake, there are dozens of terrible remakes, remakes that <laughs> take the story, 
divorce it from all the roots that made it interesting. Mm-hmm. Something like Black Christmas. I mean, just abysmal, yeah. depressingly bad. The majority frankly, are wretched. Are just grim. And I think part of this question about the remakes, I think one of the things that's underlying some of the comments here is is a sense that the, the 70s horror films were coming from a really oppositional place, both aesthetically and economically. Things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Last House on the Left, Night of the Living Dead, these were films that were so far from Hollywood geographically and and spiritually that there was a real sense of, wow, this is a voice that we just don't get to hear. And having the films like Texas Chainsaw and Night of the Living Dead and even Last House on the Left, I hear, is in the pipeline as, as a remake, to have these things taken up by corporate mainstream studios and given that glossy mainstream look to kind of make them acceptable mainstream entertainment that does seem like a loss in a certain way. A loss, but also it's, I mean, even though it's co-opted by studios, it's kind of almost like a stealth. It, it can be seen as even more horrific in a sense, like the corporate like authorities that we, we buy our entertainment from, they, they have the same sadistic reasons as the originals. I watched the Black Christmas remake when it came out, and and of course my first knee-jerk reaction is, oh, it doesn't understand the poetry of the original Bob Clark's film or whatever. But then I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, this is... These characters are so plastic, and the actors playing them, it's like they're really ruining it. And uh, is this what the studio thinks who I am? And can we talk about the hideous over-explaining, which I think is something that the studio environment really encourages. It's the, you can't just have the madman that you don't know where he came from, you don't know why he's doing this stuff, you just know he's there. Well, here, we have to know where he came from, why he's doing it, every detail. I was on my watch after about 15 minutes, and you know what? I don't care. This is not interesting to me. I want to see the dynamic between those girls in the sorority house. That's what's interesting. Not, oh, boo-hoo, what made this killer the killer he is. Uh, I mean, reacting to that, too, though, if you take a meta step almost away from the film, you could say that there's something horrific in the idea of the studio devaluing our expectations like Mm -hmm. that. I'm going to ask one more question and then open it up to the audience. People are often judgmental about filmmakers and audiences who are interested in this genre, and I'd like to know how you respond to that. I'll start with you, Mayla. You know what? I almost want to say, if, you know, if I have to explain it to you, you don't get it. It's like jazz. <laughs> there is a very visceral appeal to horror movies, and I'm somebody who has spent much of my adult life thinking about horror movies and thinking of reasons that I like particular things and reasons that I think particular aspects of particular horror films are very potent. But the fact is, I love them. (laughs) I just love them. They are such a kick. They are such an experience. More than most movies I see, and, you know, I'm a weekly critic. I see a lot of movies. I can be immersed in a horror film more quickly than I can be immersed in all but the best of almost any other genre of film. And I love that. That's what I go to the movies for, to be immersed in a reality that's not mine and that I don't have control over. I mean, in my personal experience, I think most film critics actually do really love horror movies. I wonder if maybe part of why they're so tough on them is the disappointment, is mm-hmm. that they do love horror films, and when they're disappointed by them, they're especially savage right. about it. and I'm disappointed all the time, yeah. but also perennially hopeful. Yeah. All right, great. I'd like to open it up. Where should horror films go? Wherever they dare, yeah? yeah right. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I think it would be the absolute wrong thing for 
a horror film director, even with the best of intentions, to say, you know what, I'm, I'm really upset with the Iraq war, I'm really upset with where the country is going, and I'm going to make a horror film that has a message about where I think the country should be going. And you get Hills Have Eyes too. Right, so yeah. some, something unfortunate. I think what has to be trusted is a kind of, for the filmmakers to be more receptive to their fears and the mood of the way things are feeling rather than any kind of explicit, I'm going to make a one-to-one statement, like I'm, I'm going to have a George Bush stand-in in my movie, I'm going to have an Iraq war stand-in. That's almost always going to lead to a hackneyed, boring result. And I think that tapping into the mood of the country in less explicit ways is really the way to go. And and that's clearly something, as Maitland was saying earlier about the 70s films, is what these directors were attentive to was the mood of the country and this sense of there might not be a tomorrow. And I think that's where horror really gets its power from, not from a specific sense of here is a particular political situation that I need to make a comment on. Because by the time the film comes out, the political situation Mm -hmm. has changed. If you want to be told how to think, then horror is not the genre for you. It's almost as if horror gets its power from being suggestive, not being prescriptive. Absolutely. When we look back on the films that are coming out now, they're not going to, I mean, as much as I love Joe Dante's Homecoming, which is, I think, perhaps one of the most on-the-nose type explicit explicit political films. That's a film about zombies. Dead veterans returning to America and voting out the Republicans from (laughs) office and going to the polls. And I love that idea, but that's going to seem, I think, almost a little too dated in the sense that when you have a a film like The Descent, which actually almost unwittingly has political ramifications of a bunch of Brits in a cave led by an American who doesn't have a map. And takes them to hell. And takes them to hell, (laughs) and they all die. The politics in that situation are going to seem much more apparent to future generations. Although, interestingly, I think the film that's on the double bill with Homecoming, Death Dream, which is Mm -hmm. under another title, right, is quite explicitly about the Vietnam experience at the same time that, you know, it's a spin on the monkey's paw. It's a spin on the old tale, you should be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And it's explicit Vietnam illusions. It's about a mother who desperately wants her son to come home from Vietnam and she wishes him home, but he's dead. And, you know, he comes home the living dead. And the ramifications of that are pretty horrifying, are not diminished. The explicitness there does not detract from the suggestiveness. Yeah. So it is possible. Although v- Vietnam is actually never spoken aloud in that You're film. You're right. It's al- not. Al- although it, in the new Hostile film, there's a line where someone actually says they think killing people for business is, is degenerate, but what about New Orleans or Chad or Darfur or whatever? Mm-hmm. And that just makes you want to leave the theater. It just feels like a cheap shot that's not earning its power. Can you talk about the resurgence and importance of other cultures or besides American horror? That's an immense subject that we could talk about for uh, the whole Stick night. Um, <laughs> I'll just add a couple of things. One is that I think the, the J-horror phenomenon of the 90s that was means very... Japanese horror. Yeah, Japanese. the Japanese horror. Um, these kind of very careful, calibrated sort of ghost stories are really much closer to the kind of scream, sort of ironic, sort of snarky teen horror films of that time. Kind of toothless, sort of stylistic exercises, not really going after something a transgressive force. And I think that era has ended almost completely or been transformed a little bit into the Final Destination Saw sort of mechanic films. So 
I think some of the J-horror films are quite good, but I think that they had a very historical lifespan that's since ended. Uh, there is an interesting thing with these new horror films that we're talking about of foreign filmmakers also duplicating these 70s aesthetics, films like Wolf Creek, which does this kind of, Australia. you know, hotties in the Australian outback get savaged by this garage maniac. And High Tension, Alexandra Aja's film, which I think until the tragic finale is, is a really super, superb film. Oh, it's kick-ass, no it's question. Um, and there are other examples, but I think those are two of maybe the most widely seen and talked about. They're also a part of this kind of return to a 70s aesthetic and the dynamics of the 70s films, expressing similar anxieties about battling communities and going outside your comfort zone into the wilderness. And I think, you know, in America, you could say in a very glib sense that, that this is a red state, blue state kind of fear about the deranged hillbilly. But it's a fear that is resonating across the globe right now. Nathan, I wonder if you could also talk a little bit about how you see some of these trends playing out in other genres. This comes a little bit back to the talk about the process, the process of horror, and these films showing us the mechanism of horror and identifying with this process, the system of atrocity and brutalization. We were talking earlier about, is Passion of the Christ part of this dialogue? Does the sort of atrocity and horror of that film relate to what these new horror films are doing? I remember being struck by the simultaneous release of United 93 and The Death of Mr. Lazarescu, speaking of foreign films, I guess, both of which are about... British and Romanian. British-American and and Romanian film, both of which are about a death that you know is going to happen. They're doom narratives, doomsday narratives, and the journey of the audience is to find out how that death and how that disaster is going to happen. And that seems also what The Passion of the Christ is about, and related, I think, to what some of these horror films do in really engaging us with the actual process and texture of violence and destruction and this apocalyptic you know, nihilism of you these could, films. You, yeah, you, you could add to that list a film I actually haven't seen, which is A Mighty Heart, this new Angelina Jolie film about the Pearl beheading, which is almost like a, a highbrow version of these new horror films. It's a death that we know is coming. And I was talking to someone who had seen the film, and uh, and I heard that to the filmmaker's great credit, it's Michael Winterbottom, who is a great filmmaker, he doesn't show it. He doesn't show the beheading, which is something that we could all see in YouTube. And I was thinking, like, is that to his great credit? Does that elevate the tone? Does taking a barbaric act and not showing it somehow make your treatment of it more sophisticated? I mean, whereas the films that we're talking about today show it, and they kind of rub your snout in it, it's sort of a knee-jerk reaction to say, well, the filmmakers are barbaric. Well, maybe they're responding to it in a more honest way than a sort of highbrow way. Well, and I think with the extremity of these new horror films, and in terms of what they will show and are willing to show, you have to factor in, I think, that this is a reaction on some part to the internet, that you can see the most fucked up shit on the internet. Just Google, you know, anything in there. It's raised the bar on what is widely available in terms of images of atrocity that aren't really specialized. You can find it on any computer. And I think horror films, in showing that extremity, are related in a way to special effects blockbusters. They're the two kinds of movies where an audience can go and see something they can't see anywhere else in a public setting. The sort of extremes of cinematic representation. And I think part of why this is getting more extreme has nothing to do with politics, but just by the fact that these kind of images are so much more widely available. Yeah, and in terms of that theme of pushing audiences to places they they haven't been, I I feel like it, it's important you know to go back to the question also about international contexts of horror and non-American horror. I disagree with Nathan on this in terms of I really think the Japanese boom is 
in many ways just as impressive as the American boom in the 70s. Filmmakers like Takashi Miike, I mean, his entire body of work is based on this pushing of the envelope to really make you uncomfortable with what you're seeing and what you're feeling. And and you balance someone like Miike, who's, who's so invested in that in-your-face visceral horror with someone like Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who has the complete opposite sense of how you get under an audience's skin and, and what horror is all about. The fact that you can have two such wildly talented and imaginative filmmakers coming from the same country at the same time just, just gives a, a kind of thumbnail indication of what's going on in Japan. And the horror films coming out of Korea are also really interesting. I was really happy to see the host represented in this series. Yeah, best monster movie in I don't know how many It's fantastic. Years. It's fantastic. It, it does horror well. It does melodrama well. It, it does a family story. It, on each of the mm-hmm. places it goes, it, it excels. And I think Asia right now for me is the most exciting place for horror. I also think it's fascinating to see a film like Calvaire, which is a, a Belgian mm-hmm. film, which is as completely invested in the aesthetics of the American 70s as any American film I've seen since the 70s. Mm -hmm. And frankly, was pretty horrifying. Mm -hmm. So it's something that is international. The thing that I feel very sad about is I'm not seeing a lot of interesting work coming out of Italy. And Italy was absolutely paramount in forming my sensibility about horror films, the gialli of the 70s. And gialli are really more thrillers than horror films, and yet their intensity, I think, pushes them into the realm of horror, absolutely helped to shape the way I think about horror films, because what they were all about was the chaos that lies right underneath the surface of everyday life. You didn't have to go in the backwoods to have something awful happen to you. You could be on your way to your beautiful apartment in a a lovely high-rise building in Milan, and the horror would come to you. And it came to you in the middle of great beauty, and, and a really wonderful aesthetic sense. They were fantastic films, very influential films. I mean, Hostel 2 certainly derives a great deal from the Italian gialli. And frankly, the Italians aren't doing much right now. I want them to do better. <laughs> <laughs> and it's too bad, because when you consider some of the early work by Dario Argento or something like Suspiria, which I, mm-hmm. I think maybe aesthetically could be considered a granddaddy to a lot of this stuff, that's some of the first work that gets attacked for its total emptiness. I mean, it's so aesthetically pure and politically, it's a void. No, it's, I mean, it's drawing much more on fairy tale traditions right, right. and not just Suspiria. Right. All the Gialli, frankly. I mean, you know, girls keep running into the big bad wolf every place they go. And it really is not about a prevailing political feeling. Right. It's about that basic fear that there is a big bad wolf and there is a boogeyman and there is somebody in your closet or under your bed. And that's very potent. I mean, you can laugh about them now, but. I still don't want to go poking around strange closets in the middle of the night. and <laughs> That shower curtain, who knows what's back there? <laughs> it's potent. It goes to a very primal place. What is the point of view in contemporary horror as compared to some of the first-person camera work in horror of the 1970s? It's the point of view of a marketing executive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is far more horrific yeah, than Michael Myers. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that point of view thing is very much characteristic of slasher films, very specifically. It's not a, a horror thing generally. And slasher movies definitely anticipated, frankly, a whole school of video games, first-person shooter games, mm-hmm. in which you are put in the position of the purveyor of mayhem. 
in the hands of a good filmmaker, I don't think those films were inherently misogynistic or inherently forced you to sympathize or empathize any more than a Hitchcock film like Rear Window makes you explicitly empathize with the killer. And yet the scene in which Grace Kelly goes into his apartment and is poking around and you realize he's coming back, don't we all kind of feel like he should catch her? I'm not actually feeling so scared for her as I'm hoping that he's actually going to get there and find her going through his <laughs> stuff. That kind of shifting point of view thing is the thing that a good filmmaker will do. Yeah. And a bad filmmaker will just put you in the position of the killer and let you pick him off. And, and you've always got to be careful to say that this kind of camera angle or this sort of perspective necessarily makes the spectator identify with this person in the film. It's always much more complicated than that. Right. I mean, it's very easy, and, and this is one of the things I think that Siskel and Ebert at the time latched onto. It, it's very easy to say, I want to say these films are misogynistic. What's the easiest way to get that point across and say, look, we're put in the point of view of the killer. What could be more misogynistic than wanting to kill these defenseless women? But of course, you know, as Nathan's pointing out, cinema doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. Even, even if we're in that first-person perspective, our sympathies and our attention and our fantasies and our thoughts are all over the place. Yeah, you know, and it, we're never going to be locked into a point of view in that kind of literalist, simple-minded way. And it's it's not necessarily just the grammar. I think the most explosive, contentious aspect of the new horror comes when you go to see it with an audience in the theater, then the identification, it's when a kill happens. And are people applauding? Some people are applauding and some people are, are grossed out, but that's the real question of the identification. It's not necessarily, is it a first-person shot, a steady cam shot like in Halloween, but are we supposed to be getting off on the kill? And it's an open question, I don't think. And are they applauding because it's arousing bloodlust or because the killing was done particularly deft way by the filmmaker? Or, or is it necessitated by the story? that they've been shocked? I mean, right. it's, or they're applauding yeah. at the idea yeah. of their own destruction. Yeah. That's yeah, the real question. Where is the identification when the violence happens? And I think each one of these films, you have to assess it on its own terms because well, some of them fail that. And this is one of the things I think is so extraordinary about Devil's Rejects. You do absolutely explicitly identify with this monstrous family. I mean, they are very much a modern-day equivalent of the family in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but people don't cheer or applaud when they do awful things. So you have an absolute identification at the same time that you don't have a kind of impulse to cheer for what they do. That's a very complex thing that's going on there and really well done. Versus the end, say, I and mean, this is my opinion of a movie like Hostel Part Two, where I think the filmmaker is very much trying to use the violence as a woo moment, you know, an audience rousing moment. And that's really what we have to identify. What's the appeal of the movie? Going back to your question, though, there's this idea called the cinefantastic that Carol Clover and John Nash both write about. You have a sort of profusion of perspectives. So you're seeing something from the perspective of a killer and also of a victim and how complicated that relationship is. So when you put that in something like Wolf Creek or Hostel where your victims are Westerners and they're textually being punished for their trespasses in sort of a xenophobia parable, it's a really complicated sort of self-inflicting pain. If you're the killer, right, and you're also the victim and you're watching this murder for the reason of being a Westerner. It's a really complicated dynamic. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea? We should hand out the Clover book. Too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Acquired reading. Um, if you're interested in this idea of identification, have you ever heard of this book, M M Men, Women, Women and, and Chainsaws? Chainsaws? 
by Carol Clover. It's a really interesting book that goes into a great deal of, of analysis of this very question. Yeah. I think it's informed probably all of our understanding Absolutely. of It's a good start in terms of killing off the director or the intentionality of the film and then reading into it. And just the title alone, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, it's inviting, it's humorous, and it's a very playful book. It's a, it's Take a another question from the audience. What do you think about the recent box office failure of Hostel 2? And, and I want to point out that Hostel 2 was made for about $10 million, and it made about $8 million its first weekend alone. And since grossed 14 and is still in theaters. And it's going to clean up on DVD, so not a failure. There were some articles saying that. There is that Times article. Yeah, Yeah. A strangely unsubstantiated piece, which we read, and we're like, oh, I guess the bubble's burst and the new horror's over. It's not to say that we don't have a vested interest up here, but... but, there's there's a an economic strata for these films that has to be considered, which is that they're made for very l- low budgets, and once they have their opening weekend, they are profitable, or at least breaking even. You're um, talking also in that weekend about a film that's going up against a film like Ocean 13, which is made for hundreds of millions of dollars. And also, and this is something else we were all saying earlier, horror never goes away. There are big booms and there are troughs. But horror is never, ever gone because horror addresses something so primal and so vivid that you can't kill it off. You can't spend too much money on horror movies, and that's something that the producer of Halloween once told me in in an interview. He said the mistake that a lot of big studios make is they spend too much money on horror movies because they will never, ever reach out to an audience that doesn't basically like horror movies. That's all there is. But... It well, doesn't what, mean you can't make money on them. And what is profitability? I mean, this is the question I think not asked in that Times piece. When a movie like Saw is made for, what, $4 million mm-hmm. and makes $400 million, you know, it's a massive global phenomenon, and we can say it's horror is hugely profitable. Hostel 2 can make, you know, maybe $10, $20 million at the box office and then millions and millions more on DVD. Everyone's making a lot of money. The scale of it may not be this astronomical hit. It's but not a blockbuster. Yeah, it's not a blockbuster, but I think... It's premature to say that horror films aren't profitable anymore. It's also the significance. I mean, Saw is being referenced on The Sopranos. These films are, are making a cultural impact that's almost above and beyond the grosses. When people talk about the horror moment dying, like that, that time piece, I have to wonder, are we really going to be talking about Pirates of the Caribbean 3 in a, in a few years? Are we gonna, is there going to be a museum series about it? There better not be. I'm not going to speak at it. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I think that these movies by pushing boundaries on, in a conceptual level are more interesting in that regard. And I think we all kind of think also that there's a little bit of spite in articles like that, that they're written by people who don't like horror movies and who are looking for any opportunity to say, oh, thank God, that horrible, disgusting lapse in public taste that supported <laughs> these horror movies is finally over. Horror is going bust, and now these things are going away. I just don't think it's true. They're not going anyplace. And frankly, direct-to-DVD has been one of the greatest things that's happened to the horror genre. Yes, there's a lot of junk that goes direct-to-DVD, but it's also an opportunity for a lot of filmmakers working on a relatively low budget to make movies, and some of them are terrific. This is a question for Maiden McDonough. Is there any place where we can see and hear your witty comments about movies? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can see me on Movie Talk, tvguide.com's weekly vodcast. You can hear me talk about Hostel 2, in fact, if you want, which I liked much more than my fellow panelists. Why did you like it? First, because I thought that as a movie that had to be made, 
because let's face it, you can't make the money that Hostel made and not have to make Hostel too. That's just a given. I actually respect Eli Roth for not handing it off to somebody else, for making it himself, for keeping his production team. I think it's very clever. I think it taps rather than into an explicitly political kind of vibe, which is what you get in the first Hostel, and which I liked a lot, more into that fairy tale vibe, a lot of influence of the Jolly, which I love so much. And I like that he found a way to make a movie about kidnapping and torturing three girls and not have it be the lowest common denominator kind of film that it could easily have been. He actually rung some nice changes on that formula, and that's what I liked about it. Bad oh, endings, nice. but still. What do you think of the character of Jigsaw, and is he suggestive of deepening insanity in culture. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I think with Jigsaw, the first word that occurs to me to think about him is, isn't sadistic or insane, although those apply for sure, but moralistic, which is probably the worst combination of <laughs> insanity <laughs> and and <laughs> and sadism. I really agree with, with some of the things that the panel was saying earlier in terms of that film and Jigsaw as the killer being satisfying in some kind of way or alluring to audiences precisely because there seems to be an explanation that you can get. He's in control, whether it's about his motives and figuring those out or the film itself, like Nathan is saying, as a puzzle. Like the tagline for Saw is, every puzzle has its pieces. (laughs) Oh yes, there will be blood. (laughs) Right. And, And so there's this kind of sense of a game that can actually be figured out that has its rules that you can make your way through and master even in some kind of way that is part of the appeal. And and this could not be further from the aesthetic of a lot of the Japanese horror films, for example, where there is nothing you could possibly do to figure out why you are going to die. You just are going to die. Well, that's the greatness of the grudge. All you have to do is walk into that house and that darkness will follow you It doesn't matter how nice you you are or virginal you are. And it's not just the J-horror films, it's real life. It's like that impotent question that we've been asking ourselves for the last six years, why do they hate us? Why does Jigsaw hate us? I mean, the reasons are pretty clear. They're laid out. We didn't value X, Y, and Z, or we we were a druggie, so he's going to make us crawl in a pit of needles. (laughs) There's causality. There's reasons to it. And I think that's what people are, are thirsting for. What do you think of The Exorcist in the context of other 1970s horror films? And also, why wasn't Grindhouse successful? It'll make its money on DVD. Watch. Because Grindhouse was like the Walter Mondale of horror movies. In in that it was sort of teaching us about taxes and then also asking us to vote for it at the same time. And I mean, it was like, it was high fiber and it was sort of like, don't you remember these movies? Oh, you don't? Or don't you? Here they are. And then also sit for three hours and do it, you know. I enjoyed the hell out of Grindhouse, so I'm not going to call it the Walter Mondale of horror movies. I'm glad you bring up The Exorcist, actually, because one of the things we haven't touched on yet, and it seems like we've touched on quite a lot, (laughs) is the differences between high-end and low-end horror. And The Exorcist was an early example of a major studio investing in a horror film in, in a major way with major stars, but being very aware of the success that films like Last House on the Left had had and not being scared of incorporating some of that visceral ickiness into a a film with a much more burnished and highfalutin context. I think that kind of negotiation between high and low is something that's really interesting to watch in horror. And and this is an exercise I do with my students all the time, actually, because they come into my classes and they say, you know, you're showing us all these low-budget, gritty 
films, but they've got nothing to do with something like a great film like Silence of the Lambs. That's a great film. It's got Anthony Hopkins and it won Academy Awards and it's Jodie Foster. And I always say to them, show me something in that film that's not already in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Last House on the Left. You just take those dressings, the money and the stars and the nifty cinematography, and it, w it was all there already. And yet, Silence of the Lambs is often perceived of as a psychological thriller, not a horror film. And that kind of distinction between the horror film and the psychological thriller, I think, often stands in for this kind of high, low distinction. And, and to me, it doesn't hold much water. And for you either, I think, thinking of The Exorcist as a horror film. This is a great idea to end on, this idea of catharsis. So can we talk a little bit about that? I have this thing with catharsis because it, it's been for so long the place for people to go to defend horror. The people who, who want to say, well, I don't like horror movies necessarily, but at least they're cathartic. At least they allow me to deal with something that maybe I haven't dealt with and I get out over on the other side and I've moved on, I've progressed. You found closure. I found closure, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and I'm ready to go on Oprah. But the thing to me that's most valuable about horror films is precisely their resistance to catharsis. The idea that these are the films we can rely on to remind us that what we thought we had worked through, what we thought we had dealt with, what we thought we had understood, we actually didn't understand at all. We didn't work it through at all, and we're repeating it, and it will come back. And that's what these films remind us of in a way that so many other kinds of films are invested in catharsis in that forgetting sense, in a kind of getting over sense. Horror is invested in precisely the opposite. It's invested in making us remember. Even if that hurts, that's where these films matter, I would say. I'd like to address what I think was another part of your question, which is, you know, are the movies that you see when you're young the ones that will always mean the most to you? And are you always going back to them in your head because they were the first time you saw something or the first time that something that you were thinking about was somehow clarified for you by a movie? And I think that's something that probably all of us are aware of and think about. You know, you don't want to dismiss newer movies just because they don't give you the jolt that you got the first time you saw something because, well, that's not fair. That's about you and not about the movie. But I am always looking for a movie that will excite me, that will show me something or make me think about something in a way that I didn't think about it before or that I hadn't seen before. I look for that everywhere, and I find it not as often maybe as I would like, but I find it in all kinds of places, not just horror movies. You know, I'll see a, a movie like The Return, a Russian movie that came out a couple of years ago about a father who suddenly reappears in his family's life and takes his two sons on a fishing trip that goes someplace that I hadn't expected. And I'm happy again, because I've seen some, that movie gave me something that I didn't have before. But I would say, in this idea of a, a glut, and if you get exhausted or uninspired, it only takes one movie. Yeah, it only takes one movie every six months. And you're happy. Maybe longer, and, just and, one. And the good know? news is, uh, the current crop is not slim. No. I mean, that's, that's kind of what the point of the series is, is that we're finding significance in the new films. But one of the things that I always love about horror uh, maybe there's a reason for it. Maybe you guys have an idea about it, but it, it seems like a very young genre. It's practiced by young people. Mm -hmm. And you consider the big successes, something like The Blair Witch Project, which we actually haven't talked about, but that's you know almost like a student film in some ways, and that's 
millions and millions of dollars grossed. There's something about seeing the cutting edge of craft, of digital versus analog, of ideas, of political response, even naivete expressed in horror, and you don't really see that in other genres. No, absolutely. And, and I, I'm always very moved by quotes from filmmakers who are, we now consider master filmmakers, David Cronenberg or Wes Craven or George Romero. But you go back and look at their early films, and they, they say this openly themselves. These early horror films I made was my way of going to film school. And I, I knew that there was a young audience out there that would be sympathetic and receptive to what I was doing, even though I didn't know how to handle a camera the way I wanted to. And mm -hmm. I, I didn't know how to tell a story in the most economical way, but I knew there was an audience of like-minded people out there that would see what I was trying to accomplish. And, and I think that's one of the real hopeful aspects of the genre to me, is that it does have this endlessly youthful dimension to it. I and also think that, I'm probably speaking for all of us, but tell me if I'm not, that when I mention older films in a review of a newer film, it's not always because I'm saying this new film is bad because it's derivative. I'm mentioning those older films because I think that the person who might like this new film might want to see those other films too. I see it as a way of bringing things to people, not as a way of slapping down new movies with old. And I think readers sometimes take it that way, and it is absolutely not the way I mean it, and I don't think any of us yeah. do. I think horror is healthy. <laughs> Whether we do anything about it or not. Horror right. exists right. independently of any of us yeah. because it's tapped into that primal, primal stuff. Horror is healthy. You heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> For the next six weekends, you can come and get healthy here at the Museum <laughs> of the Moving Image. With our series, It's Only a Movie, Horror Films from the 1970s and Today, I see no reason why you shouldn't be here every weekend until July 22nd. There are two programs I'll just let you know about in particular among the many different programs here. On July 22nd, Amy Virejo will be speaking about gender and sexuality in The Last House on the Left and The Descent. And then Saturday, June 30th at 2 o'clock, the Maverick filmmaker Larry Cohen will be here with a archival 35mm print of his film It's Alive from 1974. So I hope you'll all join us here for that. On behalf of the museum, I'd like to thank all of our panelists today and our audience for coming. Thank you. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.